adventurers. Your quest is set before you. The road bends off into the distance. It is a cool and gloomy morning. You gather up your bags. You look around at your stout fellows, your party members, your druids, your paladins, your mages. You give each other a knowing nod, for this is not your first adventure together. And you all have a deep, intuitive feeling that it will not be your last. But nothing is guaranteed in the well of the Forgotten Realms, and so you jump on your steeds and you head off down the road to see which powerful dungeons and terrifying monsters you can encounter on this, your adventure, into D&D's Forgotten Realms. This is what we're doing today on the Arena Crab Podcast, which is what this show is. I'm one of your hosts, Arjuna, <laughs> the other gallantly galloping host. Are we there yet? At first I thought you were the hero, <laughs> Kovac Go Blue, but now I think you're just the mule. <laughs> oh. Dude. No holds barred this week. I like it. The gloves are already off. I just got called the mule on my channel. Bravo. Bold. It's a bold play. Anyway. Bold, bold play. We'll see what the uh, what your retaliation role is. <laughs> so yes, co-host and owner of the video channel that you're watching this on, Kovac Go Blue. How are you doing today, buddy? Applause. May we have some applause? I think I deserve it for that performance and for taking that needle directly to the heart. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm doing good. I just just over here, chilling, being number one mythic. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty gas. So the previous decks that you've posted for number one mythic, people have been like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah, that's yeah, that makes sense. That seems like a powerful deck. You caught yep. some serious heat, man. Because I did. I mean, CGB in like making what is the ultimate troll of hitting mythic number one, playing a mono white aggro Yorian deck. Yeah, I that that is what happened. Um, and without without question, the most heat I have ever received. But uh, I hear that there's no publicity that's bad, and uh, continuing to prove it. So people just get so triggered or blinked you might say by yorian they just that how dare you add 20 cards to the sacred 60 card deck and call it magic the gathering you disgusting disgusting monster i don't care if you just get a free four or five flyer it's, it's not 60 cards it's not 60 cards there's a consistency issue arjuna oh my god the twitters the twitter trolls are unbelievable I just love people second-guessing your deck building when you're literally number one mythic. Yeah, that goes through my head, too. If they'll do it now, I think that's just proof that they'll always do it. Yeah, I've seen, like, I've checked out a Louis Scott Vargas video on channelfireball.com. Maybe you've heard of him, Hall of Fame, top five player of all time. I've checked out Paulo Vito Dama de Rosa. Maybe you've heard of him, world champion videos on his decks. There are always people in the comments saying, I don't know about X, Y, and Z. I've been having great success with Necromentia in that spot. Always. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. Which, if you listen to our Scams episode, Crafties, you will understand how we feel about comments such as that. So today we're going to spend pretty much the entire episode talking about the new D&D set. And we're, we're just going to be reviewing some of the mechanics and mostly talking about the cards. But I do just quickly, CGB, give us like the two to three minute synopsis of what this deck is 
why people hated it, and why it ended up actually being good enough to take you to number one. First of all, the origins. I did see that it, there were at least five people who registered a mono-white 80-card Yorian deck in the Kaldheim Championship event, and it was white aggro with Yorian. Hmm. And that's, okay. you know, I, so I just kind of locked that in my head. I didn't play it back then, but I just locked in my head that that was a thing I could do. I've done stupid memes like mono-red Yorian before. In best of one, when, there, when you see a Yorian companion... And you have a hand that is four removal spells and three lands. You mulligan. And you look for mystical disputes, card draw, ramp, whatever else your deck does. If you're an aggro deck, you look at your hand with Skyclave Apparition and you mulligan because you want an early aggressive curve. So that is a big advantage in best of one. I had so many people, like when I go turn one Selfless Savior, turn two Luminarch Aspirant, they just go nice. And then turn three, they're like, pass. And I'm like, I play Alcide of Life's Bounty. They're like, Mystical Dispute. I'm like, I got you. Oh, dude. <laughs> that happens so Sick. many times. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the mulliganing thing in Best of One, where you base your mulligan decisions on Companion, is a big advantage. The other thing that people just don't want to accept, I think, is that the card quality has become pretty flat. It's not about having this specific two drop. It's about having a two drop because there's several good ones. It's not about, especially in mono white three drops, right? It's not about having this specific three drop. They're all busted and you want them all the time. Skyclave app, like I think this deck had something like 17 three drops, something absurd. <laughs> and I mean, that's it, one of the nice yeah. things about playing an AT card deck, right? Is you get to just cram more good white three drops into it. I, yeah, because there's no there's no ceiling on it. So as long as you mulligan your hand in such a way that you have two to three lands and you have at least a play in turns one or two, you're just going to be spamming powerful white three drops the rest of the game. And usually they die, especially if there's a faceless haven anywhere in the mix. So uh, it gets... I, I tried a lot of versions of mono white. The stats are on untapped GG, it, but... The last version was the most successful. All of them were over 60% win rate. But the mono white Yorian that took me from like mid diamond to the top was like uh, 76%, I think, something like that. And it did really good. So got there, dropped the screenshot. People accused me of blasphemy, sullying, sullying the, the, the honor of number one mythic. But the fact is, like, being number one mythic early in the season is about a decent win rate and a good amount of time to play on specific days. I, I I can't stress that enough. You don't have to be the greatest magic player to be number one mythic in the first several days of the season. You just have to be there and you have to be trying and you have to be adequate enough to get some good win rates and pick up wins and be a little tactical about it. I think it's probably hard to do it in, with a known predictable deck because people are out to beat it. So a little bit of a curve or an angle on it goes a long way uh so that's that's what's up it was fun and then after i got to number one i switched to a mono black deck with eight lessons cards and a full wish board of lessons and four professor onyx uh and it had 23 strict saving cards and no adventure cards from eldraine and i i got back to number one mythic with that i i held number one for about eight hours with that thing <laughs> yes that yeah, just it was fun that just fuming man they're they're, they're just, dying out there, man. Yeah, they they're, just they're they're melting. They can't they just they can't handle you, man. That's what it really comes down to. Well, well, congratulations. I I just like that you're out here proving that 
you know, you can do something different and still be successful. And even late into a season and late into a format, you can still just be finding new ways to tag the meta game and getting success. Uh, did you see Got Noticed by Michael Flores? I did. Yes. Oh. Shout out to Michael Flores, who is one of the uh, great kind of original Magic players, I would say. He, along with Patrick Chapin, they run one of CGB and my favorite longstanding podcast, the Top Level Podcast. And they both have been producing all kinds of content, written and otherwise, for Magic for literally decades now. So, yeah. Yeah, it was so cool to hear from him on on Twitter and hear that he likes the unique deck ideas. Like, that meant a lot to me. Yeah, that was super gas. So, well done, CGB, and, uh, you know, just further cementing your place as the one and best of one. Thank you, thank you. All right, man. So, now we're diverting our full attention to this new D&D set. We have... No, no, not yet. One more thing. Okay. Okay. This is hidden in the state of the game, and I think everybody needs to know this. Okay. Because it is awesome. Like, this is big news. Uh, but it is the last thing hidden in a state of the game that's usually an ad, so I don't blame anybody for not reading it. You know how we wanted Eldraine to rotate early? Yeah. Yeah. What if I told you they're doing that? Really? Kind of. Okay. All right. You have my attention. The standard 2022 queue... Remember Standard 2021 last last year, the format we broke in like late August and September? Yes, I remember it. It is returning early, really early. Oh, It it will be live next week. That's gnarly. Eldraine, Ikoria, Theros, Core M21 are not legal in this ranked best of one queue. That is gas. That means that we're going to basically get to play an entire set of the new format, basically. Yeah. That's okay. That has my attention. That is gas. Yeah, we don't have to talk about all these cards as if they're just drowning in Eldraine. Totally, totally. And so I'm assuming that's going to be best of one, just basically like the same configuration that we had last time. Okay. Best of one ranked and best of one unranked. Okay, so I've already come up with a challenge for us, Kobago Blue. We have to break this format as well. (laughs) Why wouldn't we? We are the Arena Craft Podcast. We are the podcast focused on MTG Arena. This is an arena format, and I think it's going to be a heavily played one that the pros aren't going to care about. So yeah, we got we got jobs to do. We do, we do. So okay, I'm I'm looking forward to that. That is a challenge I can get behind trying to solve. Well, awesome crafties. So go proliferate with that knowledge and get brewing, and we will see you in that ladder. Hopefully, we'll be playing at least you know, one, <laughs> I'll, I'll set my sights low. Hopefully we'll be playing at least one of these cards when we, uh, when we jump on that ladder. So Kovaco Blue, they spoiled what looks to me about like maybe half the set so far. Yep. You know, we've gotten a good selection of mythics and rares and uh, kind of cards at all rarities. We've also gotten to see a couple of new card types so far. So before we jump into this, is there anything kind of general you want to say just about like how the set's hitting for you so far and how you're feeling. Hit and miss, I think <laughs> okay. is how I would put it. it. It's got, there's a lot of things about this. I feel like the D&D rabbit hole was very deep and they like dug to the bottom. Like they went way into the Forgotten Realms because I think, I don't think I expected how far they would take 
the flavor, the theme, and everything that they're doing from the card styles to the mechanics. And I'm I'm uncomfortable with how far it's gone. Uh, and we'll get to it when we talk about some of the cards, but especially like some of the mechanics and things like that, I'm worried that I'm the magic is getting lost and the D&D is becoming overpowering to those who just want to play magic and think that D&D is cool, but aren't interested that much in playing D&D. So I, I think that those people are getting left out a little bit. And I know I'm going to sound like a, a doubting Dennis, a, a grumpy old man uh, talking about that. But I've got to be honest, like a big part of why I got into magic was so I had something to do while the other kids were playing D&D because I didn't take to D&D. So I feel a little bit encroached upon because I think they went maybe overboard, maybe too far, uh, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I I don't disagree with you. I think this is a celebration of D&D in Magic. And so I think for people for whom that really hits, it's going to feel good regardless of what the cards end up doing in Constructed Magic. But yeah, for someone like me who's not elbow deep in the lore... I'm kind of, I'm a little bit like, can we, can we fast forward to the parts of this that really matters for magic? You know, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of been my, my feel so far. And perhaps it is just a little bit of that kind of uh, Throne of Eldraine cynicism, which has infected, you know, the general player base lately. But it's just really hard to look at some of these cards and imagine actually playing magic with them, which I think is sad because that's basically what we all want to do. Now, one of the things we do have to remember is that this set is basically in lieu of a core set. And so we do have to kind of hold our horses a little bit in terms of like this might not, they might not even be trying to position this as a full on big S set, you know, because like a, a lot of the core sets in the past have been, I mean, let's face it, just a little bit underwhelming. That's almost why they design them, you know, is to be a little bit vanilla. I think that that helps to ease the sting a little bit on this set. It's also one of five standard playable sets this year. So that's another thing to remember as well. And I think both of those things just indicate that there's not quite as much pressure on this set to actually be like a, a big hit, basically. As, as well as the powering down of standard. So just trying to level it off from the absurd heights of that Eldraine was a part of. But now that we do have that 2022 queue that's going to be available where this is going to be 25 percent of the makeup of that queue it's a lot in my opinion more interesting that some of these cards that at first we look at are like not so much now we have to be like well maybe maybe Maybe. yeah maybe and i mean as history has proved to us more more of a set ends up being playable than we usually think from the beginning yep So, you know, we have to kind of keep that in mind. And as history has proven to us, it's often the cards that we overlooked in the original, the first blush. I also want to get, just before the transition, I want to get really clear. I think there are some really cool cards. There's a lot of the flavor stuff that I'm like, it's not hitting with me, but I I am excited about a good amount of cards. Awesome. Okay, well, where do you want to begin? I The impression I get is that for this week's discussion, you handpicked some cards which you thought would be like really fascinating to get into or maybe even kind of Mm -hmm. exemplify some of the themes of the set i did a little bit more utility of scouring through a bunch of cards and picking out cards that i thought would be players cards that people might consider putting in their decks i i it's funny as i look down a lot of my list it's like a lot of the not very flashy cards it's just like a lot of the 
commons and uncommons that I think will eventually make that way into decks. And we also have the show next week where we're kind of expecting to do a bigger like set review when we've really seen the whole set and things like that. So this is kind of the um, the appetizer for that, I suppose, where we talk about some of the more exciting stuff revealed so far. Yeah, excellent. Before we get into some of the specifics, I want to highlight there's a new card type which they have spoiled to us. These are called the, what are they called? Classes. Oh, okay. So have, have you had a chance to look at these CGB? I saw one. I have definitely not like locked in uh, yeah. what it is. So what have you got for us? What's, what's the first class? Okay, so classes look a little bit like sagas, but they require mana to advance to the new chapters. So we'll, I'll give an example here. Paladin class. This is one white mana for an enchantment class at rare. And basically at the top of the card, it says gain the next level as a sorcery to add its ability. So this is a little bit similar to those creatures that level up. It's kind of a similar thing, except this is the, the enchantment or the saga version. So paladin class for one white mana, you get this effect immediately. Spell as your opponents cast during your turn cost one generic mana more to cast. Then, if you spend two and a white at sorcery speed, you can advance to level two. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one. And then, for a whopping four and a white at sorcery speed, you can advance to level three. And level three says, whenever you attack, until end of turn, target attacking creature gets plus one, plus one for each other attacking creature and gains double strike. So the, the idea with these cards is that you're supposed to advance them throughout the game, presumably on turns where you have the extra mana or where you want the effect to kick off. And then they have kind of an ultimate ability, which usually costs the most mana. And that's it. You reach the end of your class. So I guess the idea is that you're like selecting the class for your mage, right? Your character in the game. And then you're investing your mana in leveling up your character. That's the flavor of it. Okay. Interesting. And from what I can tell, the, my biggest question just looking at this straight up is, this. so this is an enchantment. This effect just stays. So when you like progress from level 1 to level 2, assuming this stays on the battlefield, both of those things remain active? Correct. So you keep all of the, all of the early stuff as you add the later stuff. So the enchantment gets better and better the more mining you Okay, in. it doesn't replace the ability from before. It adds the ability. Okay, so paladin class is like immediately like a tithe taker type effect. Uh, and then when you put more mana into it, it becomes a glorious anthem effect. And when you put five mana into it, it's a tithe taker effect, a glorious anthem effect, and also this double strikey bonusy thing. That, exactly. that, is, it's- that is weird. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I think Paladin class is, of the ones that I've looked at so far, this one looks like to be one of the most in consideration to actually be playable. I'm not necessarily suggesting that this slots into the existing mono white deck, but, you know, the effects on here are powerful, and I think being able to get, like, an Anthem at three mana, which is kind of what we're used to paying for them anyway, in addition to getting the Tithe Taker effect and some of the other stuff, I think could end up being pretty good. I don't think it's flagrantly unplayable like some of the other ones are in Constructed. Yeah, 
I don't feel like counter spells are good right now against the white aggro decks and things like that anyway, where you just want that tax ability at a competitive level or at a meta level. And I don't think you want to invest a total of four mana to get a glorious anthem effect. Then you, how do you evaluate just having a mana sink and that level three ability? I'm not sure. It, exactly. It's kind of a, it's a very odd card, right? And there's yep. also kind of this frustration like what if, what if they just brazen borrow the thing and you have to start over after you put the mana in that sounds nasty that is brutal or, or if they just portable hole it right oh it says gain the next level as a sorcery too as a sorcery yeah oh i thought it would actually be sweet if it were an instant to because you could threaten the pump or sink mana if you didn't use it on something else but as a sorcery that hurts and, you know, that sums up actually a lot of the cards I've looked at in this set that I got kind of excited about is some of them have good effects, but they happen at sorcery speed and it kind of kills the card. Um, okay, so that's the that's an example of the classes. I think that that's that and the dungeons, like the new hotness, as it were, that are happening in the set. They definitely look the most unusual compared to like the typical magic card. Uh, how they interact. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of sagas, of course, because there's the chapters and the different modes that you go through. Exactly. But I don't think they're quite as good as sagas. No, I, I would agree. I mean, one of the nice things about sagas is that you invest the mana once and then you just get all the stuff, right? Yeah. So you don't, you don't need to kind of keep putting your mana in. And exactly like you said, it kind of takes some of the sting out of your opponent having a brazen borrower or having another way to deal with it. Yep. So... Anyway, yeah, I'll be interested to see if any of these show up. So, CGB, why don't we start with the cards that you set aside? And okay. we can talk about those. And then after that, I'll just go through a number of cards that I think are kind of utility cards in the set and maybe a few highlights that I think could show up. You just want me to, to dive in, let the nonsense begin, and we'll see how far we get? Yes. Okay, cool. So the first thing that I want to talk about are the cards that I think will impact kind of standard constructed, but they have a lot of tension with them, and that's the the creature lands. Anytime that there's a decent creature land cycle, they tend to show up in constructed because it's pretty awesome to be able to get a land effect, which you need in every deck, that can also be used as something else, uh, specifically a body that can attack or block, put pressure on the opponent, cause them to respect it, things like that. So uh, I'm going to talk about the creature lands, and I'm not going to read each of them, but I'm going to talk, I'm I'm just going to kind of bring up a few here. They all have the same text. Uh, The first line is, if you control two or more other lands, Cave of the Frost Dragon enters the battlefield tapped, or, you know, Cave of the whatever. And then uh, this is the one that taps for white and has four and a white. Cave of the Frost Dragon becomes a 3-4 white dragon creature with flying until end of turn. It is still a land. The control two or more other lands, my brain read this and quickly thought I was looking at a fast land at an inspiring vantage, right? Yeah. And and it told me that if this is the third land, my, my brain quickly said, if this is your third land, it will enter the battlefield untapped. It will not. It, it has to be the first land or second land you play. Ultra fast To be land. untapped. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Ultra fast land. So I think that that's a, a significant thing to think about in terms of deck building. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about the deck building cost of these because on one hand, you want to play these in a lot of decks. It's just better than a plains or mountain if you play it on turn one or two. But there's so many tensions in the mana bases right now that I find it very interesting. These, uh, unlike, 
I, I, okay, the first thing I'm going to start with, I think these are like the the just the nail in the coffin of those snarls, man. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yep. I, That's probably I true. They can just, you put they them play in the same deck with those lands? Yeah. Yeah, you could put them in the same deck, but I mean, they're not going to help you play your snarl untapped. And yeah. to play your snarl untapped, you need to play it early because you need to have a basic in your hand when you play it, and then you need to play the basic after it. But if you're playing your snarl early, you're going to have a hard time playing your cave early. You're going to need like a perfect draw of like planes, snarl, cave to yeah. be able to curve one, two, three. And that's not how magic works. You don't get to yeah. stack your deck as anybody who's ever drawn two fabled passages in their opening hand knows very well. <laughs> yeah, or just. The, the favorite, like, two or three snarl opening hand, you know? Oh. <laughs> Those are ugh. some good times. Yep. Um, yeah. So that, I, I think that that's interesting, that snarls are kind of unplayable now, which is weird. But I also think it's interesting that these these lands, they exist in the same world as Faceless Haven, and they always will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that yeah, that puts a ton of, like, would you rather just have Faceless Haven and Snowlands? Than playing these, which can't activate Faceless Haven, or is there room for both? I so mean, that, that's hmm. a good question. I think that that tension is a little bit overstated because I mean, the decks that are running Haven are you know predominantly monocolored. If they're multicolored, they're often two-colored, and you know they're very specific. And so I think that these fit into a lot of decks, which you just can't really contemplate running as Faceless Haven decks because they don't play a lot of basics, basically. So I think any deck that you run, which plausibly has like, you know, 16 basics in it, or, you know, plus some tapped dual Snowlands if you really feel like it, then sure. I mean, Faceless Haven is just better in a vacuum than any of these. But I think that there are plenty of decks out there where playing the snow and playing the haven is it's just not it's not even going to be a consideration. And so I think that these cards will go very nicely into those decks. Yeah. Do you have any examples? Uh, one that I thought of was Gruel, Aggro Adventure, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Or just like, I mean, think about any three color deck, right? Like you might want to play one of these in a Saltai deck. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those decks are basically, or just in any deck where, um, okay, so one of the problems with Faceless Haven is that it's a colorless land, right? And so it makes a lot of sense in a monocolored deck because you don't have pressure on your mana base to be producing that much colored mana. So I think that a lot of these creature lands could go straight into like a more controlling deck, for example, or yeah, Mm -hmm. a three color deck. I think that this this blue one, let's see if I can get the name of this, Hall of the Storm Giant, for example. Let's talk about this one. So this has the usual text. It enters tapped. Uh, if you control two or more other lands, it taps for blue. And it has five and a blue until end of turn. Hall of the Storm Giant becomes a 7-7 seven, seven blue giant creature with ward three. It's still a land. So I definitely imagine that someone like you, CGB, are going to be considering putting at least one of these in like your Demir control decks or basically like a lot of your different blue style control decks. I mean, you've got to love a land that can just wake up and almost single-handedly just take out an Ugin, right? Or like, I, <laughs> yeah, just like, <laughs> I mean, this thing is a Planeswalker demolisher, right? Damn. <laughs> nice. 
So um, I don't know. I just I, I think that there are plenty of decks like that that these cards are going to go straight into, and I think they will perform. I also think that while Faceless Haven and Snarls and some of these other cards don't always perform well with other lands in the format, like these do perform well with face, with uh, Fable Passage because you want Passage mm. on four and you want these on turns one and two. These do yeah. perform just fine with uh, DFCs like uh, Shattered mm-hmm. Skull Smashing, you know. Whereas running Faceless Haven, it's going to be hard to get enough snow sources if you're also running all of those. They don't play well with castles, which are mm. still legal for just a little while longer. Yeah, um, and I don't, I mean, you'd need things to run perfect to line them up with triomes. Although I think triomes mm-hmm. are still worth it. Mm-hmm. I also don't know how many you run. Yeah, my gut check on that is probably running them as one-offs. Like, I think, I think I would start with one-off. Um, I think maybe you could run two if it's really on mm-hmm. theme for your deck. I definitely wouldn't be looking to run the full complement because I, because I think at that point you are really... Okay, so you're starting to really impact the efficacy of your mana base. And I do think that if you want to have a truly aggressive bent to your deck, you should just be looking at a more aggressive deck and you should just be trying to think about a faceless haven instead, right? The efficacy of your mana base. Uh, next next clickbait title. <laughs> 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 the big vocabulary words coming from the Brit right at you. Oh, I love it. One of my big questions for you, Kovaco Blue, is are these lands going to effectively invalidate Crawling Barons? Yes. Uh, that's my gut as well. I think that these lands basically are just better than Crawling Barons, pretty much any of them. I'm sure you could make an argument in any given deck. Crawling Barons does have the advantage of Sometimes it can just kind of OTK your opponent, especially if you wait on a key turn for when they're tapped out, and then you can just, you know, pump a bunch of mana into it and slam them for 8 or 12 or whatever. But I think just in a vacuum, these lands hit harder, do more for you, and are just a bit better. You know what else? Uh, It effectively uh, takes out Crawling Barons. Mm. The standard 2022 play cube. Yeah, there baby. you go, baby. Right. But, but <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to do that to absolutely every time we reference one of those cards. But it's gonna. It's hard for me not to. Just to be honest, I'm that giddy. I am so giddy about it. Oh, it's it's so gas. <laughs> that is such a cool decision they've made. Do you realize how long it's been since you could play a format on MTG Arena without Eldraine? A long yeah, time. It's been a long, a long time. And long, I'll tell you what, road. it feels 10 times longer than it has been as well. It and does. I mean, think <laughs> about the fact that like for the entire time that COVID has been around, we've had to deal with Eldraine. I mean, <laughs> it's... <laughs> Are these events connected? <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. They hang out together, right? <laughs> Look, man, I'm not saying the lockdown would have been easier without Eldraine, but... <laughs> Think about it. Just just think about it, Crafties. Maybe a few more smiles, you know, in the world without Eldraine during lockdown. Maybe. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> all right. So is that all we need to say about these lands? Or do we have any yeah. kind of an idea of the power rankings? Ooh, um, actually, I don't. I haven't carefully looked over absolutely every mm-hmm. single one. I do love that Hive of the Eye Tyrant, which is the black one, mm. has the ability that for three and a black, it becomes a three, three black beholder creature with menace. Menace is cool. Menace is and whenever menace. this creature attacks, exile target card from defending player's graveyard. 
I like that they put just a little extra, and they mm-hmm. did this on all of them, mm-hmm. but like Hive of the Eye Tyrant just going after the graveyard a little can make a bigger difference than people realize. Maybe they were expecting Uro to still be in the format. <laughs> yep. I <laughs> finally I, printed You know, a number of the cards in this set make me think that they expected Uro to still be in the format. So, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> the red one stood out to me as being, I think, quite good. Den of the Bugbear. So this one for three and a red until end of turn, Den of the Bugbear becomes a 3-2 red goblin creature token with whenever this creature attacks, create a 1-1 red goblin creature token that's tapped and attacking. So, you know, if this one gets like hit by a bone crusher or something like that, then you feel pretty bad about it. But if this gets even one attack in, that's like a major pain in the rear. For example, think about a scenario in which like you're a control deck and you're playing against a red aggressive deck and you basically tap out to counter one of their spells. And then on the following turn, they just whirl this bad boy up and start clocking you. And it's like, this thing's just spitting out little tokens for free every time it swings in. And that's gonna, for a deck like a control deck, that's gonna get very annoying very quickly. So I do think that Den of the Bugbear is a, I, I think it's strong. I think it's a strong consideration for red aggressive decks. I don't know whether it's better than Faceless Haven. I'm not ready to say that about it. But I think that this is like a deck that you, a card that you can confidently put in a red deck and feel good about playing. What the deuce is a bugbear? Uh, you got me, man. <laughs> <laughs> you got, got me. I'm guessing it's more than the sum of its parts. It's not just some insect bear. But I guess we'll find out. Yeah, sweet card. And for like mono red or for Winota also, like thinking about this with mm. Winota is interesting because it leaves that. Gas. Makes yeah, it leaves dudes. the one one behind. Yeah. <laughs> it's two dudes attacking. I mean, that's that's freaking sweet. So I, I, I see a future for Dan of the Bugbear, especially when Bone Crusher rotates. What are we moving on to next here, CGB? So the next card I want to talk about is Xanathar the Guild Kingpin. This is four blue-black for a 5-6 legendary creature beholder. It is a mythic. And it says, at the beginning of your upkeep, choose target opponent. Until end of turn, that player can't cast spells. You may look at the top card of their library anytime. You may play the top card of their library. And you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast spells this way. What do you think of this card? All right, so we have to move beyond the dies to Doomblade argument with this because, you know, that's, of course, the initial... That's the initial uh, protest, right, around this card. Right. Cards like Mystical Dispute and Doomblade get a card like this pretty hard. But assuming that you are either able to protect it or just that you ever untap with it, I mean, yeah, this card definitely goes off. And... I think one of the things that I like about this card is that I think this has the potential to be like a, a prison win con, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that you have more to say about this, but one of the things that I like about this card is that especially if you're playing against like an aggro deck or a deck that plays a lot of cheap cards, you might actually be able to play cards off the top of your opponent's deck until you hit a land and then pass back to them and then they if they don't have an answer they draw their land and maybe they play whatever else is in their hand they pass back to you you just play off the top of that deck until you hit a land and eventually 
they, they will just not be able to do anything. And even if they do eventually answer the kingpin, you've spent this entire time playing cards off the top of their deck while they have basically been emptying their hand. So even if they do deal with the kingpin, you have a big board and presumably you've still been drawing your own cards. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Xanathar can be like a pretty devastating win con. Yeah, I think that this card doesn't pass the dies to Doomblade argument and therefore will be written off by a lot of people very quickly. And that is true. But you know what else is true? You're probably going to win if this doesn't die to Doomblade. The game can just end because, like you said, you can play lands off this, but you might just not and make sure that the opponent draws nothing but land for the rest of the game. You can also play multiple spells. You can play one spell, then play another spell, then play another spell because it's open-ended. Whatever the top card of their library is, you can keep playing it. And not every deck leaves the house equipped to kill a 5-6 on site. Portable Hole and Glass Casket aren't going to do it. Eliminate's not going to do it. Like there, There's a lot of cards... Uh, Bone Crusher Giant, nice yeah, stop, I, bro. Mono Red in general, like they have to have basically two Frostbites just ready to go. Oh, they can't kill us either. Yeah, just just a reminder: Elder Gargaroth did not pass the Dies to Doomblade test, but it is a very popular card right now because there are decks that are just unequipped to kill it, and people realize rightfully so that if you just start attacking with this thing, you win. Uh, it, it's card advantage; it's hard to deal with absolutely dominates the battlefield and xanathar wins in a different way you just bury your opponent and you control the top of their library it's that's so brutal it's I mean, so frustrating that's the thing another thing you can do is you can just play like a good creature off the top or if they have a removal spell it can kill xanathar you play that and even if you leave them with a playable card, it might just be some darky card that's not going to have an impact on the game, right? So I think yep. that that's, you get to dictate how that turn starts. And especially because, I mean, here's the other thing that's so devastating about this card is that if you untap with it, you get to decide how you use your mana. You get to decide, you know, what interaction you leave up. And you also get to know what your opponent's drawing for their next turn. So... Yeah, it's it's very easy. I mean, especially if you build a deck with Xanathar in mind, it's very easy to imagine this just, yeah, just taking over the game, being an unstoppable threat. And uh, and I mean, just look at that smug smile, man. I mean, it was it was made for you, CGB. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> I, I will say there's also this sweet uh, there's this sweet situation that might come up that some people might just turn them off the card forever. What if you have creatures, they don't, and the, their top card is the Doomblade? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. You might you might be Doomblading your own creatures to keep your Xanathar alive. Totally. Yep, that could happen. You know, this is what I'm envisioning, CGB. I'm envisioning you building like an Esper control deck, which runs like four Doggos and four Xanathars, and you just you just go from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to try this. Have you seen the Grixis Reanimator deck? No. Like Crokeys has been playing it a little. It's kind of gotten some steam and standard, but basically you reanimate Velomachus Lorehold, you attack with it, you reveal another one of those five mana, like unbreakable bond reanimation spells, and you reanimate another creature like a coma. Kinda wanna okay. reanimate kinda wanna That's... reanimate this. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good reanimation target. Could even end up being a good cheating into play target. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, not a card to sleep on. It might just not line up properly. I mean, six mana is a lot more than five mana. 
which is really something. So this really does come down late in the game. It's harder to bring it down and leave up interaction, etc., etc. But it is an undeniably powerful card. All right, cool. What else have you got for us, CGB? I want to talk about Adult Gold Dragon. <laughs> okay. This one's all you, baby. Oh, really? You, you ain't got a lot to say about Adult Gold Dragon? I think I could sum up my opinion on Adult Gold Dragon in, in one phrase, but I'll, I'll let you I'll let you go <laughs> for it. Um, all right. So, first of all, the naming is a little odd, but apparently it's this way in, like, monster manuals or in D&D. Like, dragons are classified by age. I have had a lot of people tell me this because I still find it weird to say, I, I, I have an adult gold dragon. I'm casting adult gold dragon. I don't know how old Shivan Dragon is. Nobody ever told me. Good I have no idea. Is, mm-hmm. is Glorybringer young, medium, old? I have no idea. Yeah. I, but I mean, Sprite, this is an adult. Sprite Dragon is probably young, right? Somewhat clear. <laughs> it gets older as you <laughs> cast your spells? I don't know. So, somewhat clear. Anyway, the Adult Gold Dragon is three and a red-white for a 4-3 flying lifelink haste dragon. At rare. At rare. Which I think is key. That's It being rare says something to me. So, I'll ask you what that is in a second, but yeah. I, I think a lot of people are looking at this and just being like, ugh. And what like that shows how insane our power creep has been this is what eldraine did to us that we look at a five mana three ability where one of them is haste the other is evasion flying the third one is generally gravy unless it's reach and it's actually lifelink this card you might you you look at this and you say well goldspan dragon goldspan dragon is amazing goldspan dragon makes mana goldspan dragon does all this other stuff and you're right that is true but what goldspan dragon doesn't do is gain life and i can't tell you how many times i've been in an aggro matchup where i have finally hit my fifth land and i can play my goldspan dragon and attack with it but the odds are very likely that i will die on the crackback I will die. And that's not really what Adult Dragon is into. Adult Dragon is a serious life swing. Uh, and if Planeswalkers were actually a part of the format, like any any significant portion, it would be a Planeswalker murdering machine. And I, I feel like this card is better than we think it is, but the power creep mindset has absolutely like sullied it for all of us, is, is how I, I look at it. But I'm going to say it, you can't stomp it. Okay, so it passed the bone crusher test. Uh, a five yes. mana, <laughs> a five ra- mana rare, a five mana rare dragon passed the bone crusher test. This, <laughs> there's another mono red test. This dragon does not pass, unfortunately. The bite of frost. It, it good. Doesn't. Don't worry about it. Nobody's gonna play that anymore because they're gonna want to play the little goblin land. They're gonna want to get in the in the in the bear. What was it? The briar bear patch. Bug bear. <laughs> <laughs> the bug bear. They're gonna be bugging the, the bear. The cabbage patch bear. Yeah. Dude, nice. they've been trying to get rid of that snow land mana base. They want a reason because if they don't run castle ember, they don't feel connected to their little one drops. So, uh, don't worry about frostbite. It's gone. Yeah. Don't Not worry about. Your opponent having a one mana answer to this. One um, mana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so dies to frostbite is is my first submission, is my first one phrase submission for this. Another one is 
Goldspan Dragon exists. You know, you made a fair point about how this lines up, but I still think Goldspan Dragon is twice the magic card that this card is. And the third the third phrase that came to my mind when I looked at this was should have been an uncommon. Ooh. Which look I how think power is, creepy we are. That's that's what I'm talking about, right? Because like this if if I'd looked at this and this was an uncommon, I would not have batted an eyelid. I would have been like, oh, that's gonna be pretty good and limited. And the irony is, like, in some limited formats, this isn't even a very good card. There are some limited formats where, like, the removal doesn't line up, or there are a lot of flyers, or there's, like, a common three-power reach spider or something like that, you know? So, who knows? Like, Adult Gold Dragon might not even be very good in this limited format. We don't know. All right, I'm going to hope that's not true. I'm definitely in the, in the haters club, for sure. And I think that's fair. I just think it's interesting. That's why I bring it up. Yeah. Oh, you know what it doesn't die to? Power What's word that? kill. That's true. Got him. Take that. How you like that? Doesn't die to vanishing verse. Eh? Eh? Meh? Eh? 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 So yep. many cards, it doesn't kill it. All right. We have ourselves a winner. Prismari command. We could do this all day. All right. So um, you're ready to move on, but... There were a couple of dragons that I wanted to discuss while we're on the topic of dragons. And you think now is... All right. Yep. Now is a good time. I think now is cool. a good time. All right. Let's do it. So I submit for your consideration Ebon Death Draco Lich. Two mm. black black legendary creature zombie dragon at Mythic. It is a flash flyer. It's a 5-2. It ETBs tapped. But wait, there's more. You may cast Ebon Death Draco Lich from your graveyard if a creature not named Ebon Death Draco Lich died this turn. So, I I can already see a number of objections people have might have to this card. For example, Kovaco Blue. What what are some of the objections that you might have? To uh, I object because I hate fun, interesting, cool, awesome skeletal but not quite skeleton zombie dragons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a very valid, uh, valid argument. <laughs> he wasn't ready for the troll. You actually expected me to answer that seriously. I know, right? Okay, sorry. I trolled pretty hard. Yes, uh, Bone Crusher, go on. <laughs> so Bone Crusher's a thing. First thing to note, though, this isn't going to share a standard with Bone Crusher for that long. So um, this will have the majority of its time in standard B without Bone Crusher. Here's another thing. Even with Bone Crusher, I think that if you're playing this in, like, most aggressive black decks you're probably doing it wrong but i wonder if you would consider running one or two copies of this in like a controlling demir deck which is already full chalk a block freaking full of removal so obviously you're probably not going to play this on turn four you might not even play it on turn six but here's the thing about this card okay first of all five power hits hard right so let's say that your opponent like on turn five, they slam the Ashiok, Soul Render, and they tick up and they make a little dude, and you just slam Ebon Death. The next turn, you can just clock in. And I don't remember, does it Ashiok goes up go to up six to six? And six? it's Ashiok uh, Nightmare Weaver? Nightmare, Nightmare Muse, Muse, I think. Okay. Yeah. So maybe that's a bad example because this doesn't kill Ashiok, but there are plenty of planeswalkers that Ebon Death can just freaking knock on their sides, right? It's not even necessarily bad against an Ugin, for example. But here's another thing, is if you get this back even once, it's going to start to be very annoying. And with a whole suite 
of two mana black removal spells in the format, it's going to be fairly simple for you to kill your opponent's creature, replay Ebon Death. And then let's say that your opponent answers it, either that turn or the next turn. Well, kill your creature, replay Ebon Death is a thing that you can probably do most of the rest of the turns of the game from there on out. And I just think that this card could start to become like exquisitely frustrating for your opponent to play against, especially since it does block a number of the other dragons that we're talking about here. And I think in any kind of a longer and grindier game, this could be a real problem. I like this card a lot. I think it doesn't pass the traditional Bone Crusher Giant test, but it does in a different way. It's a combo with the opponent's Bone Crusher, because say they do stomp it. That's fine. Now they have a 4-3 creature. They're going to play their 4-3 creature. What are you going to do to their 4-3 creature? I'm going to kill it with a million different ways that I have to kill a 4-3 creature. And when I do kill it, not only will I murder their nasty little bone crusher giant, I will bring back my dragon. Because it doesn't say creature you control died. It doesn't say creature you control died on your turn. It says when when a creature, you can cast it from the graveyard if a creature not named this died this turn and it has flash. The flash ability always belongs to the Ebon Death Dracolic. So if on your turn we trade creatures or I kill one of your creatures with a heartless act, power word, kill, whatever, I can recast this. It's, I think this card is absolutely sweet. I'm really excited to try it in a non-Bone Crusher world especially, but... In general, I think this is a very cool card and a very fun kind of grindy win con. I agree. I I also just think this is the kind of card that really punishes your opponent for tapping out. You know, your opponent, like, they play a questing beast, you flash in an Ebon death, right? Okay, you're not blocking it that turn, but you untap with your mana, and then they untap, and they have to get through Ebon death, and you have interaction, right? It's just, I don't know, like... I think that this card could start to get very annoying. That five power, also, it tangles with just about every threat except for an Elder Gargaroth. Yep. So you're really not going to feel that great about swinging your Lovestruck Beast into this thing. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think that this could have like a one-of or a two-of place in a more controlling deck, and I think that it could be a surprisingly sticky threat. Yeah, this card is also going to be the Twitch chat separator, one of the many, because when you're watching, when you when you jump into a stream and you watch a streamer and they're playing in a weird manner that makes no sense to you and you want to ask like so many questions every turn, you're like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? The answer might often be if my opponent plays the Ebon death, I'm going to be way behind or I'm going to die. So I'm not using my mana effectively. I'm sequencing my spells weird. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And you're probably going to lose track of the amount of times CGB that your Twitch chat tells you to flash in Ebon Death and block with it. Let's get that one right out of the way, all right? Ebon Death does not, it neither attacks nor blocks the turn it comes into play, all right? YouTube commenters, you're not off the hook either. <laughs> so yeah, e that ETB's tapped is the most important line of text on this card. All right. Uh, another dragon that I wanted to talk about, Imrith Desert Doom. So this one is 3 blue blue, legendary creature, dragon at mythic, 5-5, five, five, flying. Imrith Desert Doom has ward 4 as long as it's untapped. Whenever Imrith deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. Then if you have fewer than 3 cards in hand, draw cards equal to the difference. So, first thing to note, ward 4 is a lot of ward. 
I mean, this does die to Doomblade, but it's a six mana Doomblade. So, you know, that's kind of something to consider. It reminds me a little bit of what was that Dragon Lord that had Hexproof as long as it was untapped? That would be Dragon Lord Ojitai. Yeah. Now, this card's probably not as good as Dragon Lord Ojitai, but I wouldn't write this card off. This, this card has definitely powerful potential. The higher the ward number is, the bigger of a pain in the butt going to become and you have to remember that you can't even binding the old gods on this and expect to get away with it if you don't have Mm -hmm. an extra four mana around so i think that this card is going to be a surprisingly hard to deal with threat and you get to decide right you get to decide when you swing in with it this is going to be a total nightmare i think for people playing goldspan dragon you know providing you resolve it right of course i mean this does not pass the mystical dispute test but if you can get the dang thing down, like they can't swing into this. Like, I mean, even if they make treasure, like they're not going to be able to afford any kind of useful anything on this. So this is like a, a, I would say not like a hard counter to Goldspan, but it's a it's a pretty strong counter to Goldspan. So anyway, I, I think that this card has potential. What do you think? I think it's cool, and I hope that it's a glimpse into the future that we are sitting here discussing dragon sizing to cost as relevant in the format because you're right that was something i was thinking about as you before you brought it up uh just while you were reading the card is like for a five mana five five it sits at size like in sizing land it's going to block the adult gold dragon and maybe this other card called Goldspan Dragon, but it doesn't uh, tango with Ebon uh, very well, or the 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 last one we talked about. Um, so uh, yeah, I hope that Dragon Sizing actually matters in future standard because that would be cool. Because I think this card is sweet. If you're on the play, they can't afford a Doomblade on this card. It it takes six mana, and that's also assuming that they're hitting every land drop untapped. So even if they have a Heartless Act. You might get a turn with this. And you know what else this curves into? A foretold all runs epiphany. And hitting multiple times with this sounds really nice. The draw cards equal to the difference means that if you're empty handed and you swing in with this sucker, you're drawing three cards that turn. That's that's a lot. Like that's really good. And remember, foretell helps you empty your hand. Like you can foretell a saw it coming, yep. have no cards in hand, so you get the extra peels off this thing. I think this card is a beast. It's the blue dragon of my dreams. I just don't know why there's a blue dragon in a desert. I need the lore. That was a flavor fail for me as well. The lore must know something we don't know, because these are all dragons that are part of the Forgotten Rome storyline. And I, what's it doing in a desert? Was it was it an ocean that became a desert because the desert doom here is just so freaking awesome? Is that what it was? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. that is the main question yeah. I had with this card as well. Final card I want to highlight in the dragon conversation. Actually, no, sorry, there's two more. Um, dude, there are some sweet freaking dragons in this set, man. Okay, next one, Dragon Turtle. Oh, I, I, I thought of you, and you know why. Because MTG Nerd Girl really wants to hear you say it. They want wants that British accent saying the, the T word. Okay, let, let's lay it on them. Are y'all ready? Okay. <clears throat> you just said y'all. <laughs> You're a fake Brit. You know what? <laughs> you need to be quiet while I'm saying my magical word. Okay. Okay, go on. Turtle. <laughs> all right, all right. All right. I forgive. I forgot y'all ever happened. 
<laughs> you know, I'm transatlantic, dude. Give me a break. Okay, dragon turtle. One blue blue creature dragon turtle. I mean, the type line says it all. At rare. It is a 3-5 flash. And I won't dignify it by reading the little flavor keyword, but when Dragon Turtle enters the battlefield, tap it and up to one other target creature and opponent controls. They don't untap during their controller's next untap steps. So this is a weird card. But when I think about being a mono red mage, this card seems like a nightmare. So let's just say, you know, let's say you put Dragon Turtle into a Demir deck or an Izzet deck. So your mono red plays opponent plays their turn one, hasty, whatever. You know, you do your thing. On turn two, they play a thing. On turn two, you hopefully have some kind of a removal. You kill one of their things. On turn three, they play Anax, and on turn three, you play Dragon Turtle. So next turn, their Anax is gonna be tapped. They will be able to swing in with their stupid little one-one or whatever. Uh, they'll probably play another creature. And then on the following turn, you untap with this. And they untap with, you know, their annex and whatever. The key thing to note about this turn, though, is that now you have mana available and you also have a 3-5 on the battlefield. I just feel like there are many scenarios in which the world is your oyster from here on out. You could do things like have a negate up and, uh, you know, whatever Doomblade of your choice is. You could have a Brazen Borrower. You could have anything else. And the problem is that a 3-5 is a really hard creature for your mono-red opponent to attack into. Like, it's a lot of toughness, and it's enough power to kill basically everything but a Tarbrand from their deck. Mm -hmm. So I think that this card could be a substantial speed bump in aggressive matchups in general. And I just think it's a sweet card. Agree with... Like, all of it. I, I think you hit all the points I would hit about the card. The thing I want to bring up that might not be apparent on first reading is that you have to tap it when it enters the battlefield, whether your opponent has a creature or not. That so if yeah. for some reason you decided to play Dragon Turtle Beatdown, this effectively takes a turn off. It is a turtle. Yes. I definitely think of this as a sideboard card in aggro matchups because, yeah, it's definitely not... It's not going to go into your blue beatdown deck. But here's the thing. Where else are you going to get a three power, three mana flash? Even if it does take a turn off, is it that bad? I mean, that's what I'm saying, dude. This is a three, five flash for yeah. three mana. Yeah, like, that's sick. That's a house. So this might, it's a might house. be main deckable. I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's sideboard only. I think that that's clearly where you start. But I wouldn't be surprised if this if this dragon turtle is sneaking around in the main deck. You know what I mean? Especially if there are tournaments that are open deckless that you're playing in. Like just the presence of this in the kind of in the list can be like, oh, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to run headfirst into the dragon turtle. I and, and anything that makes Annex a worse card, like you described, is is music to my ears, of course. And I mean, this stat line is so beautiful. This thing blocks Faceless Haven for days. It does. This thing blocks Bone Crusher for days. Yep. You're going to have to do some work most of the time to get this thing off the battlefield. And yeah, I just, I think that this card is sweet and I want to live in a world where this is playable and standard. I also have to just throw it out there. The amount of lightning in these blue cards is, oh, almost, and, and a bunch of them have like Flash or they're dragons and you're just like, oh yeah, let's get some more like, thunderstorm light as as i don't know if you know this about me as a 
fan, and I mean lifelong big fan of epic thunderstorms and lightning displays, uh, it, it's doing it for me, man. You, you can improve almost every card with some lightning on it, except for maybe a That's lightning bolt. That's true, you know? <laughs> Anyone who wants, like, one of them sweet 80s shirts with, like, some animals and some lightning on it, yeah, this, <laughs> this is the set for you. Oh, baby. All right, before I hand it back over to you, CGB, there is a dragon artifact. Orb of dragon kind. Yes, why don't you read that for us? This is a rare for one in a red. It is an artifact. One tap, add two mana of any combination of colors. Spend this mana only to cast dragon spells or activate abilities of dragons. And for a red and a tap, sacrifice orb of dragon kind. Look at the top seven cards of your library. You may reveal a dragon card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Okay, so I think that this is a pretty sweet card. It is a mana rock for dragons. So it doubles the mana you put into it, which is nice. So it helps you to play your dragons one turn sooner if you want to play them on curve. Next thing, of course, I mean, it digs you seven deep for a dragon, which any deck that you would put this in, you're almost certainly going to hit. And the final thing is that it also plays, I would say, fairly nicely with Galazeth Prismari. So... I don't know, man. I think we could have some kind of a some kind of a dragons deck in standard. I don't know if it's going to be great. Maybe it ends up being the next giants deck, but if it if it is at all playable, it's definitely going to include this god. The dragons available are already like ten x the power of the giants, so don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. The Prismari dragon deck is already a contender, like doing fi- plus fifty percent win rates in competitive standard events right now and this card when you think about them running maze mind tome this card makes mana before you have a galazeth prismari which is one of the big draws to maze mind tome in that deck or it can help you hit a dragon uh i th- i think this card is sweet i i think i think it's very playable i i'm thinking of like a two of kind of like where maze mind tome was i don't know how many dragons you need but that's just so far we're just thinking about the prismari dragon deck that already exists this is mana fixing for dragons. There's a lot of cool dragons in the set. A lot of them have double cost. But what about having Ebon Death, Goldspan Dragon, and the blue one that we just covered like in the same deck? This, this card fixes amazingly well because it makes two mana in any combination of colors. Not uh, some things that we've seen recently where it's like you have to pick one of one color and one of another. It, like You can get double black out of it and cast an Ebon Death out of nowhere. That's pretty cool. Yeah, people are not going to be expecting out of your is a deck <laughs> a, a double black flash dragon. Oh yeah, or or your um you can cast your dragon turtle out of your Boros deck, you know. Oh dude, that's that's sweet. You, yeah. you got to admit that is that is some CGB level best of one deception nonsense right there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the dragons overall have me the most excited so far about this set. And I think that that's kind of on point, right? You would expect for the D&D set to have some pretty sweet dragons. And I would say that, you know, notwithstanding the adult gold dragon uh, and maybe some of the other ones at Uncommon, uh, I, I they've, they've delivered some pretty sweet dragons so far. I bet you get got by an adult gold dragon before it's over. Oh, I, I mean, yeah. I'll be the first one to just embarrassingly lose to that card. On stream, of course. Okay. Just just establishing that as a fact. 
<laughs> All right, man, I'm, I'm handing it back over to you. So uh, the card I want to talk about has been a pretty hot topic on the Twitter and uh, in the content creating world, and that's Demi Lick. Lich? Mm. Demi Lich? Lick? Demi Lich is how I would pronounce it. And I'm very interested to hear you talk about this. So this card is a mouthful. This this card feels, it just feels like it's going to be that card in the set, you know, just from the amount of text and the rarity and the weirdness. So let's go. Blue, 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 blue. That's four blues for a creature, Skeleton Wizard. It is a mythic. It's not legendary. And this is a 4-3. It does not have evasion or any other like weird uh, stuff like that. So vanilla 4-3, no big deal. But now we get into how it just becomes a free card. This spell costs blue less to cast for each instant and sorcery spell you've cast this turn. Normally it would say it costs one less or like a colorless, but it literally reduces the blue in the casting cost by each instant or sorcery spell you've cast. Now, whenever Demilic attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard, copy it, you may cast the copy. Um, we'll come back to that, but there's your potential card advantage built into the card with a Dreadhorde Arcanist meets Mizzix Mastery type flair. And then the last bit of text that makes you think, oh god, Uro is in the set, is you may cast Demilich from your graveyard by exiling four instant and or sorcery cards from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. So, like, what's the TLDR? You run a lot of instants or sorceries, and you'll be playing very reduced or free four threes, either from your hand or graveyard. Sound fun? I mean, all right. I'm, I'm gonna suspend my I'm gonna suspend my uh, skepticism for a moment here, right? And just ask you, like, what what is this theoretical, almost all instant or sorcery deck that we're playing this in? I am glad you're asking me because I am the guy who does this stupid crap yes, all the time. Exactly. I, for, I thought you'd for be content. the person. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This it's me, man. It's CGB. The the thing I thought about the most and have continued to think about the most is the various Prismari decks that you can run and. These decks often end up being a core of, imagine if you took all the dragons out of your Prismari deck and just replaced it with a ton of removal spells, card draw, and your, uh, like my version runs like the, the twins, Rowan and Will, the, the planeswalker, and tries to emblem the, them. The Eldrain one? Yeah. No, no, the, um, the war. The double-sided one. The, the new one, um, okay. Strixhaven. Yeah. It. And it tries to ultimate them so that you can, uh, Make copies of Allrun's Epiphany <laughs> as the win con. Mistmen um, has also played this into really high mythic, a version with express, Experimental Overload is the card, was kind of the win con that returns these spells back from the graveyard. I had, like, really good results. We're talking, like, plus 70% win rates in top 100 mythic after Strixhaven released with decks built around like dual strike and experimental overload like some real weird blue red spell brews that were nearly all spells and they usually won with all runs epiphany and or shark typhoon and i 
I do think this deck just slots right in. I, this card, I mean, because now you don't have to run like the Wonder Twins to have a win con. You don't always have to win with all runs Epiphany. You just like make a few of these and beat the opponent down while managing their board in all the other ways that you can. And I think that expressive iteration opt, if you want to get into like crash through, maybe there's a place for that. If you want to get into Sprite Dragon is another way to do it, you can. But I, I don't think... I don't think it's asking too much to cast a couple of spells, play a cheap 4-3 body, maintain the board with like your your interaction, and then just get these for free or for very reduced cost along the way and just beat your opponent down. So that's that's what I see. That That's where I'm going to start. And I'm hoping that there's also something else that I'm not seeing, something a little crazy, a, a little... Uh, more maybe there's a demure deck that's just a little stronger with some of the discard spells that can go with this could be very good but what do you think i mean doesn't this card just look worse to you than the what's that card that i advocated for the three three five drop that costs two if you've cast an instant or sorcery you've been right. rubbing in my face that that card has seen some play and now and now you're going to use it as a reason not to play a potentially free demi like do you think that you think uh, so maybe it goes in the same deck that it's possible it's me. possible well well i you know i was actually going to kind of self burn here by saying that that card really hasn't shown up that much in standard anyway and i just feel like if that card hasn't been playable it's hard for me to imagine demi lich being playable in my opinion, I think Demi Lich has to be like a Storm card, right? Like, I wouldn't actually be surprised to see this in like the Jeskai um, Mutate deck because that's a deck that could just fairly easily play this card for free. And I think that if you play it for free, then yeah, it's obviously fantastic. But I feel like your average spells deck, it's kind of going to take a while for you to really be able to get this thing wound up. You know, and especially like, let's say you're playing against a control deck. Like, when do you ever get your Demi Lich out? I'm having a hard time playing this in any deck that's not trying to like just go off and actually cast like a billion spells in one turn, you know? And it's also unfortunate that so many of the good spells and especially the good cheap spells are instants that you might want to be casting on your opponent's turn. And so, you know, I see this card fitting better into like, again some kind of spell combo deck which is looking to go off on your turn and do something powerful yeah i don't i don't dispute any of that i i think that it's gonna be a weird deck building constraint i think that but i think that the both ability to recur from the graveyard and the fact that you can just cast it like in, in a longer game you just just play it the opponent kills it now you cast it from your graveyard again just pay four each time you know like like that kind of grindy element, I think does keep it in the conversation because I don't think that you have to cast it at a super reduced rate for it to be useful in the late game. I just think that in the mid game, can't you just picture like we go into that turn four, turn five, maybe you're a little be bit behind a stalemated and you cast like a Prismari command, right? And like maybe you discard two of these and you draw two cards and you make a treasure and then you shock the opponent's thing and then you cast an opt and then you cast two Demi-Licks from your, gra from your graveyard or something, or, you know, or one from your hand, one from your graveyard. And it's like, we just flip the game around. And it sounds magical Christmas land, but it's not that far off from like what people said about Arclight Phoenix. Well, I, that's a really good comparison, actually. And I think that Arclight Phoenix is 
a prime example of a card which compares to this. Now, I think it's it's a somewhat unflattering comparison for Demi-Lich in the sense that Arclight's only took three mana to get... I mean, it, they took three spells, whereas this is like, if you want to get this for free, you're going to have to do four spells. So you could you could theoretically get your Phoenix plan going on turn three or just with three mana, which was pretty sweet. The other thing is that you could get multiple Phoenixes and they had haste. So I feel like you're going you're gonna to have to work harder to get Demi-Lich, and I think overall it's going to be less impactful in Phoenix. And Phoenix didn't even really end up being very good in Standard unless you talk to, you know, LSV. So <laughs> Okay, okay, hot take. I think if we rewind to some other older formats, this card might be like truly off the chain. Mm-hmm. Like when we're talking about, I don't know, these Delva decks or just, I don't know, decks that have the capacity to play a bunch of ultra cheap spells and do stormy stuff. Oh, yeah. Then, and like Phyrexian mana, right? Like all bets are off. Like, I, you know, I, maybe there are existing things that are better for that role, but I could definitely see Demi-Lich showing up in an environment like that. I just don't know that Standard can really reliably fuel a card like this. Yeah, neither do I, but I think it's one of the more interesting cards to build with, and at least it inspires you to grab it and try to make a new deck as opposed to uh, the next card that we're going to get into Sultai's Emergent Ultimatum package or another way to make Goldspan Dragon good. So I I think it's still worth a good amount of hype, even whether it takes off for sure or not. You know, this is a question mark, and I like good question marks in my sets. I mean, it's definitely one of the more interesting cards that they've spoiled, and it does have some feeling of power in it. And I mean, that art is just freaking creepy as well. You kind of want it to work out because of the art, don't you? Don't you? But I mean, I mean is it clearly levitating? Why doesn't it fly? Yeah, it's 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 odd. <laughs> like if I if I was in a dungeon and I ran into that thing, I would hightail it, dude. All right, so. Before Uro, Omnath, and um, Oko all got banned, do you think the original draft of this card had flying Andrew a card when it entered the battlefield? Oh, I'm sure it did. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> yeah, it did. It was I'm probably sure it did like too. a flash flyer that counted an opponent's spell or something. Mm-hmm. Don't also yep. sleep on the ability that when it attacks, you get card advantage. Because I think that that's an easy thing to forget, and it might take a while for this to attack, because like I said, you may have to grind, but when it does start attacking, when the opponent runs out of resources and you still have some, and it casts you an expressive iteration, it like you are getting gassed up to do a lot more, to keep that kind of storm engine going. I think that that's an easy thing to forget about the card. So was, was this your last kind yeah. of big bullet point card? Yeah. So now we're on on the, Arju- the Arjuna hot shots, and you can let me know in comments, better or worse, and we're cooler than Demi-Lich. <laughs> okay, that, that sounds good. There's a couple of... Uh, okay, so there's some other themes that are getting fleshed out in this format, like treasure. Um, there's going to be more treasure flying around. Whether it's going to be a critical mass of treasure or not, I don't know, but they're definitely trying. And there are a number of cards already that are keying off treasure or incentivizing you to play treasure. There are some interesting black looking treasure cards, um, or, you know, black treasure looking cards, I should say. So for example, Devour Intellect, this costs a single black. And let me read the exact text of this card. So single black sorcery, target opponent discards a card. 
If mana from a treasure was spent to cast the spell, instead that player reveals their hand, you choose a non-land card from it, then that player discards that card. So you basically get a Thought Seize with no life loss if you cast this with a treasure. Now, whether or not that ends up being good, whether or not the treasure deck ends up being good, that is just a sweet, sweet, sweet card and a very, very efficient card if you cast it off the treasure. So I could easily see you having these turns, like let's say, for example, you're playing a Golgari deck and you play the uh, innkeeper that makes a treasure and then you immediately devour intellect your opponent. That's like a pretty strong turn two play right there. So um, there's another card, which again, I don't know if this is going to be good enough for standard, but it, it caught my eye. Um, Hired Hexblade, one and a black, creature elf warlock. So this is a 2-2 two, two for one and a black at common, by the way. When Hired Hexblade enters the battlefield, if mana from a treasure was spent to cast it, you draw a card and you lose one life. So I think that we all agree that a 2-2 two, two for two that draws a card is pretty sweet. You know, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. And then there's another card, which I think they just spoiled today, called Forsworn Paladin, which is one black mana, creature human knight at rare. It's a 1-1 one, one with menace. You can pay one on a black and tap it and pay one life to create a treasure token. Uh, it also has another ability, which <laughs> I will read, but I don't think it's going to come up that much. But you can pay two on a black. Target creature gets plus two plus zero until end of turn. If mana from a treasure was spent to activate this ability, that creature also gains death touch until end of turn, which is kind of whatever. But I think that a one mana treasure maker is interesting, and I think a curve where you go turn one paladin, turn two make a treasure, yeah, that's compelling. I'm, you know, I'm not coming in necessarily hot on this, but I just think that there could be some interesting black-based treasure deck in the format, which if it gets enough uh, support could be really sweet. And another thing to remember is that treasures making any color of mana could really enable like, you know, Grixis, for example, which has historically been a very, very difficult color combination to play in formats like standard where we don't have fetch lands and all that kind of stuff. So do you have any thoughts on this like black treasure thing? Yeah. Uh, Human Knight is the type on the Forsworn Paladin. And there is a little bit of a knight sub-theme lurking around. And that might bring back, if you remember, Eldraine was the other knight tribal set. And those haven't seen play in a while. But when you think about that two and a black ability that gives a creature death touch and you combine it with knights that have first strike that's and the fact that it's not sorcery speed it's instant speed they just can't block something yeah like 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 your your knights if they have first strike are getting in they're they're not going to block it because whatever they block it with is going to die because of death touch. oh and dude think about this isn't this called a nightmare if you're playing in an embercleave deck yes it is <laughs> that that's touch, a real threat yeah death touch with ember cleaves yeah. so like red black yeah. knights might get one last ride you know yeah for those Could who want to do that so that's pretty cool i i like i'm trying to remember what the tribe was that they did this with last rotation where the very last set pushed the tribe it was vampires the like they had the ixalan vampires and then the very last set was like m20 and they combined they had soren and they had all these other vampire cards so for a few months we got this bonkers vampire deck and i'm on the watch out for knights to do that and as far as the treasure stuff goes it's interesting because 
usually making and gaining treasures requires some below rate action. So having these things that give you just a little bit more, I'm not sure if it's going to balance out and be worth it, but it's yeah. definitely interesting because I don't think we're going to get a way to just make a treasure for a mana. I think that's too cheap of a rate. So I think mm -hmm. everything that's going to make a treasure is going to be two mana or more. So are these cards good enough on their own that you would play them even if you don't get to use the treasures very well? And if you draw the treasure enabler and the treasure payoff and you use them together, does, is it like, are you doing it? Is you it very, it. very exactly. powerful? And I think exactly. it might be. I think it might be. And I mean, just think about the the ability to ramp, right? I could just, I could easily see like, yeah, like maybe some some Rakdos aggro deck, which manages to make a few treasures on the first couple turns, and all of a sudden you're just like getting like turn three dragon in the face or whatever. Like, I don't yep. know. It just it could snowball, or you know, uh, a deck that gets to that five treasures for Magda surprisingly quickly and you're all of a sudden cheating dragons out or cheating Emmercleaves oh, yeah. out or whatever. Like, I don't know. It just, it could, it could get there. Yeah, Magda's a good looking card with those treasure effects, isn't, isn't she? It, I mean, she's, she's not getting any worse, especially again once Bonecrusher rotates. A couple other cards in this archetype might be interesting. Skullport Merchant, two and a black. This is a one for... Creature Dwarf Citizen at Uncommon. When Skullport Merchant enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. This is, of course, a throwback to uh, the Sailor of Means, which was the blue version of this card, which I don't think that card... It, it saw, like, fringe play, I would say, in its standard environment, but um, I know as a Yorian Mage CGB, you're, you're a fan of effects like this. In 100-card and... brawl. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, it has another ability as well. One on a black, sacrifice another creature or a treasure, draw a card. I don't know, man. This card has potential. Could be too slow. Could be not impactful enough. But... Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to fire up my Yorian Skullport Merchant deck. Just let's go. <laughs> let's go. I, I will be surprised if you don't take this for a ride with Yorian at some point before that card rotates out of standard. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, final one, uh, Shambling Ghast. So, I thought you said Shambling Gas. <laughs> shambling Gasp. Um, so this is one black mana for a 1-1 one, one creature zombie. When Shambling Gas dies, choose one. Either target creature and opponent controls gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Or you can create a treasure token. So this is like a, you know, sack, sack enabler that creates treasure. Who knows? This could end up being a pivotal part of some deck, especially if we're continuing to do like village rights, plumb the forbidden. I don't know. Like I could, I could see having these pretty strong combo turns where like you plumb the forbidden, sack a bunch of creatures, generate several treasures, do another thing. Like it could start to get kind of wild. Wait, where do you get all the shambling guests from? You're hoping for another like similar effect at the cost. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I mean. Maybe. I think this card is good. I think it's yep. cool. I guess you can get a treasure for one mana in a way if you get to block with it. It's definitely going to make aggro decks think twice about attacking. Mm -hmm. Are there any good aggro cards? We'll, we'll cover that in next week's show because I'm starting to wonder if you even, if like playing a creature on turn one and turning it sideways is going to be a thing ever again, the way that's going. All right. Here's, 
Here's an interesting card I submit for your consideration. I This is a card I'm, I was very stoked to talk with you about. Grim Wanderer. Mm. One on a black. Creature Goblin Warlock at Uncommon. 5-3 Flash for, for one on a black. And the caveat is you cast the spell only if a creature died this turn. What do you think, man? 5-3 Flash for two? That's worth doing a little work for, wouldn't you agree? I think that the restriction on this card is deceptively tough, but mm-hmm. I like it. Um, I, I don't think it's a bad card by any means. I think it's a very good no. card. I think that if it sees a good amount of play, it's absolutely format shaking. Like, yeah. it just changes how you interact with everything. Because, ne- like I talked about, is playing a one drop and turning it sideways really a thing well if you have this card uh you're gonna want to play a lot of creatures a lot of one drops because you never want to be unable yep. to cast it it sits in your hand until something else dies that is yep. a big problem in a top deck war that is not good <laughs> and i mean talk about a card which not only passes the bone crusher test but you're like come at me bro Ooh. come at me with that bone crusher i dare you to bone crush my creature yeah that's true uh, unfortunately yeah. it only trades with the giant on the other side but it does so at a mana advantage which is nice yes and it also says to lovestruck beast let's go like totally. like it will trade with lovestruck beast at a mana advantage that's yeah. kind of rare and weird so yeah you have to if this card is popular and it, it might be it requires a ton of creatures in the color black which black doesn't always have the greatest creatures but like if you have it oh my gosh and also it can be the opponent's creatures it's possible yep. so like when you think about playing this in rogues i sacrifice my merfolk wind robber and i flash in a five three that sounds pretty good Not uh bad. if you or drown in the lock your creature flash in my five three you know that yeah I, I i think it's probably sideboard if we're talking about very sweaty competitive magic because i think it is exploitable if people know that this is a popular card, they can play around it. They can let you sit there with your Mopey 1-1s and not get your 5-3. But they can only do that for so long. Uh, it also says creature died, not exile. So exile mm, removal. Exile removal just continues to get premium. But yeah. if you have creatures of your own to sacrifice, like I mentioned Merfolk Windrobber, and I'm sure there are others, or if you're doing village right stuff like you said, it shouldn't be too hard to get a 5-3 for 2 at instant speed, and that's pretty gross. It is pretty gross. And just think about other things like, let's say that we have an Ozov deck running like Selfless Savior, right? I mean, Bingo. again, yeah, that's you, can awesome. just, Great call. you can have these sequences that just get like really disgusting. So, you know, this might end up being one of those cards that like looks like it has promise and then no one ever ends up playing it ever. But I ah uh, I'm I'm holding out hope for this one. I mean, this thing's a bruiser. More or less play than a Vantress Gargoyle. Vantress Gargoyle. I'm I'm coming in on more. Me too. Me yeah. too. I I think that there's a lot of potential here. I I like it. Yeah, and I mean it's just a sweet design, man. Uh, okay. So and then there's one other black card I wanted to talk about which you were talking about aggro, and so I thought I would just highlight some of the cards in the set that I'd seen that seemed like they could be aggro contenders. So, white. This is W-I-G-H-T, by the way. 
This is a one and a black for a 3-2 creature zombie soldier at rare. White enters the battlefield tapped. Whenever a creature dealt damage by white this turn dies, create a tapped 2-2 black zombie creature token and exile that card. So talk about like a cheap, aggressive creature that you will not want to tangle with in combat. I think that this card is pretty sweet, and I think if there's an aggressive black deck in the format, this is definitely in consideration to be in that deck. This card gives me flashbacks to Graveyard Marshal, which was a card that was legal in a format that had zombies. It was a two-mana 3-2 with zombie, uh, and it had other abilities to like make zombies by exiling cards from your own graveyard. And it was legal in a format where zombies was a tribe, and it was a much less powerful format, and the card still turned out to not see play. So I'm pretty skeptical. I think I just... That experience has turned me off to the two mana three two black aggressive creature because sure. for me it doesn't feel like black is into that and this does have to live in Bone Crusher Giant Land for a few more weeks and it only makes the two two if it hurts a creature which is a pretty easy thing to play around in standard I think quite honestly so yeah I'm 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 very skeptical of white it's just white. It's a white, white, like, like the white it. walkers, like a white. There you go. Okay. Not confusing <laughs> at all. Check out this white card. Nope. Like yeah, what white card? Is, this is white. A, <laughs> it's going to get a little awkward for yeah. sure. So I, I think that everything you said was legit. It also doesn't pass the bone crusher test. So I don't imagine this showing up anytime soon. Um, so yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's not good enough, but um, I don't know, you know, it's aggressively costed, and if you do end up getting a zombie out of it, it's super sweet. Uh, okay, let me see oh, what else I might want to talk about here. Uh, let's discuss Flame Skull. I think Flame Skull is a card that you might see show up. Okay. So this is one red red mythic creature skeleton 3-1 flying. Flame Skull can't block. And uh, when Flame Skull dies, exile it. If you do exile the top card of your library until the end of your next turn, you may play one of those cards. So the phrasing on this is confusing, but basically what this means is that you can either play Flame Skull again, or you can play the card that you exiled with it. You can't do both. So, um, okay, one of my main questions is, does this compare favorably or disfavorably to the uh the red phoenix phoenix of ash yes i would say disfavorably by a lot haste is yeah. really good escape is, is nice pretty good the fire breathing ended up being surprisingly relevant on that card mm-hmm. yep. yeah so yeah so maybe flame skull is just not as good as that um one thing i like about this is that as long as it doesn't get exiled by a removal spell you can play this basically as many times as you want. So that's something that you couldn't necessarily do with the Phoenix. I don't know that that's enough to recommend it above the Phoenix, but, you know, I just I think this card's interesting. I think it is too, but I think that this is interesting in a boomer way. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I, I, that's fair. Like, it reminds me of a card called Forbidden Familiar, which is very, very old. But um, basically, I don't think magic is played in a way that you can get a lot out of this card in modern magic but we'll see if i'm wrong i'm super down on this one yeah yeah 
Yeah, that, that was my main thing. If we didn't have the Phoenix, I think it would be more of a consideration, but that card I th do think is just provably better, for sure. Okay, here's a card I was interested to talk with you about, CGB. You find the villain's lair. So this is the cancel <laughs> of the set. Okay. So one, one blue blue, choose one. You can either counter target spell or you can draw two cards, then discard two cards. What do you think, man? This card sucks. <laughs> you don't like this card? No. It's a scam. To be fair, you said the same thing about Saw It Coming, didn't you? Eh. This is way worse <laughs> than that. <laughs> okay, you're, you're just you're putting the hammer down on this card. Oh, and I, I think this card will probably trick people into playing it. I, I, okay. I, that, so somebody like put in my chat that it's a better cancel. Look, every freaking three mana counter spell with more text is a better cancel, a better and there cancel. are at least yeah. one in every single set. So we're not yeah. in, we're not exactly blowing your power creeping mind with an improved cancel. So it's all about how relevant or useful is the other effect, and just about every other one, it is in addition to countering the spell you get a scry. In addition to countering the spell, you get a foretell cost that you can pay. In addition to countering the spell, you can cycle it. In addition to countering the spell, you can exile it. Here, it's like you just get good old cancel, or you get a card neutral ability that is three mana, instant, draw two cards, discard two cards. Sure, we're pretty happy to do that with Prismaric Command, because there are three other modes on that card to keep it flexible that we use pretty often. We don't have to go card neutral. But if you're just casting the Villain's Lair to draw two, discard two, like, you're down a card. I think people just don't realize that. You, I, I think a lot of people are going to get fooled, because I've already received a lot of comments about this card, that, like, you just spent a card to stay card neutral. And that's not what control decks are looking to do. And I don't know, like there's a reanimator deck that loves Prismari Command, but I think Prismari Command is 10 times better than this card in normal like magic games. And of course, if you'd rather have a counterspell than Prismari Command, you should have played another counterspell. I, I think this card's terrible. Terrible, S Arjuna. Supposing, terrible. Su supposing you're discarding Draco Lich to this card. No. <laughs> I'm not baiting CGB into it. Doesn't make it fine. Nope, we're not yeah. doing that. Nope, 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 nope. Okay, nope. so nope. you you don't... You know, I think one of the problems with this card is I think the theory, right, is that like it helps you find lands in the early game and it helps you pitch lands to find gas in the late game. But I think... I think that would be legit if that wasn't a problem that had already been fairly well solved, right? Like, how many control decks are you running these days, CGB, where you're not interested in making a land drop every turn? Uh, like, none. It's like, okay, sure, you're sometimes pitching lands, but that's because you're casting a spell that's maybe drawing you a bunch of cards, and you have yep. to pitch a couple and whatever, you know, but like... But I just I I also feel like this is kind of like a boomer trap card where it's just like I think that this would have been better back in the day, but I think that control decks just don't need this anymore. Yeah, I I just think it's a scam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's another interesting blue card, which I think some people will be scammed into playing, but I do think that there are potential uses for this card. Tasha's Hideous Laughter. 
One blue blue. Sorcery. Each opponent exiles cards from the top of their library until that player has exiled cards with total mana value 20 or more. So, before we go into the standard applications, I do think that this card could be like... I don't know whether this is true, but this could be like an amazing troll in modern. For example, I was just watching Andrea Mangucci play uh, a food deck built around Asmorana... Asmo... God, what's that guy's name? Asmorana Mordecai Dyson Nicolica. That's right. So that deck, I like the total CMC of that deck is probably like 30. And so I think with a couple copies of Tasha's Hideous Laughter, you could just freaking mill your opponent out. But I think as far as standard goes, I mean, obviously you're going to run into this in the play queue, CGB. But what do you think about this card? I'm never going in the play queue again. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> That's what I think. I, I, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, because it would be foolish not to, but I'm going to try like Turbo Mill with Maddening Cacophony, Rogues, and Tasha's Hideous Laughter, because I think you should. Because this card yep. does offer potential to exile an absurd amount of cards. And uh i there was star city games was doing the thing where they like sleeve up some proxies and play and see how the cards work and it against a deck with like great hinges in it the person casting natasha's hideous laughter was still milling like 12 to 15 cards like and by the way not milling exiling so if you were worried about filling their graveyard for a reason uh this this doesn't care about that so i i think that we've got to put it to the test I'm skeptical because it's mill, and I used to get excited about that, but I've long since moved away from it. But I, I especially like picture the rogue's mirror, right? Yes, that's oh what I was goodness. thinking about. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. It's like, a lurus. You could guy. hit, you could hit so many cards with this, right? Oh yeah. Like, I mean, if you think about how many one and two mana spells they have, and then you think about how like that matchup will often end up being kind of an attritiony mill war anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where I was thinking about this. Is in the, the rogues mirror. The only thing that can kind of hose you is if you exile two into the stories, and if you did that, you exiled two into the stories. Yep, that's a win. <laughs> that's that's a win in that matchup. Yep. That's exact. I'm really glad you said that because that was like the one application where I was like, this might be like, this might show up in the sideboard of like tournament decks. Yeah, I'm probably going to yeah. do some really gross stuff with this maddening cacophony and just test of talents and just try to just take it all from them, just leave them yep. with nothing. Yeah. Nothing. So I would say that this will show up in a number of meme decks, but I don't actually think this card is a meme. I think that this card can, in specific situations, be a really devastating win con. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm coming down on it. Um, okay, I think that we could probably talk ad nauseum here, but I, I'm I'm getting to the end. There's one final card that I wanted to ask you about before we call it a wrap, and that is Guardian of Faith. So, don't know if I know this one. This is one white white creature spirit knight at rare. It is a 3-2 flash with vigilance. When Guardian of Faith enters the battlefield, any number of other target creatures you control phase out. Okay, I did see this, yeah. So, this card reminds me of that um, flagrantly underplayed other card that you were pretty high on. The, flagrantly uh, the three... underplayed. The Glorious Protector? 
Yes, glory. Uh, I think that's the one. Is the three four flash flyer that exiles the rest of your creatures? Yep. So, how do you think this card compares to that? A mana cheaper without having to foretell it is a big deal. The mm-hmm. ETB able to hit everything on your board except itself is pretty good, but it mm. doesn't re-trigger enters the battlefield abilities, which is always what I was trying to figure out for the protector. That's, that's a good call. Yeah. So uh, Guardian of Faith has a very specific job, uh, which is to save your cards from the opponent's cards. I don't see another great use for it unless somebody is going to say, well, you Guardian of Faith, and then you board wipe. And I, I, I'm, I just call me super cynical on that being a thing. I... You know, I don't. Like, I don't like that. You mean like you guardian of faith, and then you cast a board wipe? Yes. Yeah, that's nonsense. I'm. I'm not. That. That is nonsense. That's, I'm not going to build a deck nonsense. around that. You know. We don't. But, we. We do not main deck board wipes in white aggressive decks, and we very seldom sideboard them. So yeah. On the other hand, your opponent's effects. I think what I like most. They. We have protection. We have indestructible. Those are very white mechanics. None of those save you from exile effects, which is why Shadow's Verdict and Extinction Event have continued to plague the white aggro decks. But this does. Phasing, it's it's clever, right? Because when you look at the typical effects in white, you say there's just, that's always going to be the the counter to white exile effects. But Mm. then they come along with a, a white card, they put phasing on it, which is a mechanic you don't see very often, and phasing gets around those things. The the cards Mm. are just not on the battlefield for a turn until your next upkeep or whatever it is. Uh, so I think it's a clever card that might see niche play. It's two relevant types, Spirit for Strixhaven, Knight for Eldraine. So there could be some tribal stuff going on. And it's not terrible if you don't care about the phasing. Like you can just, if if the opponent isn't doing anything that would want make you want to phase your cards you can just flash this in and start attacking them but phasing also is really good in combat because if you want to line up your blockers and uh get you know get what looks like trades or chump blocks and then you play this and you phase them then you survive combat your creatures phase back in and their creatures are tapped from attacking presumably so yeah. Like, that's really good counterplay to uh, an opposing aggressive deck or an opposing control deck that would board wipe you. So this card might see play. Yeah, I I think that this card is a good magic card. I think it has a lot of applications. And I mean, I God, I love the scenario in which, let's say you have like a bunch of Luminarch Aspirants and maybe even like some a four mana, like a Halvar God of Battle or something. Maybe some tokens. Your opponent goes for that. Uh, they go for that extinction event on even, right? Yep, yep. And you're like, flash in Guardian of Faith, I keep everything. Oh, yeah. That Shadows, sweet. Yeah. Shadow's yeah. verdict out of the ultimatum decks has just been a hammer to the white decks. Like, it, it is, it has been an absolute beast, at least in best of one. And this is yeah. a soft counter to it. Uh, by the way, also worth mentioning, you said it, but I want to I wanna stress it. You can phase out your creature tokens, and they don't die. Yes, which is, that's a nice thing, man. Yep. So anyway, yeah, Guardian of Faith, who knows whether it will beat out all of the other excellent white three drops, but, you know, it's, uh, this, this card's playable. This card's yeah. playable. And in certain formats, it might be really good. All right, CGB, well, I think that that is enough for us to chat about today. 
but I am really stoked to come back next week and look at the entire spoiler and see if we can get a little bit clearer on like the, the bones of the format and how it's actually going to start playing out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next week's show where we're going to kind of try some new things with the format, but we're going to try to really go over the heavy hitters across several different categories of how they'll be relevant to Magic Arena, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, dude, I'm stoked. So join us then. We release every Monday also, and you can find us on basically all of the platforms. We're on Spotify. We're on your podcatcher of choice. We are also on Kovac Go Blue's YouTube channel if you want to watch the video version of this. Hopefully it went smoothly this week, but we did have some hiccups, so we'll see how that turns out. And uh, you can, of course, catch Kovac Go Blue streaming on Twitch every week. You can also catch me sometimes streaming on Twitch, ArenaCraft Podcast. Yeah, and Kovac Go Blue, I will enjoy venturing even further into the dungeon with you next week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. Later, crafties. You never know which bit bottle brush is going to snip and drop on us like a nuclear missile. I love how Bottle Brush has become like the third Beatle, you know? Good producers do that. Good editors do that. Exactly. Exactly. More like the fourth Beatle, though. There's me, there's you, there's like anything else, and then there's him. We gotta keep him in line, okay? Burn. We gotta keep him in line. He's gonna get a big head. (laughs) Sick, but yeah, he's gonna start just like putting his own stuff in there. He's going to think he is the Arena Craft Podcast. And it's like, yo, yo, you're, j- you're the window that the viewers of specifically the YouTube see the podcast through. Let's not get, let's not get crazy. Yeah, we're going to start to have like musical interludes of his music, you know, just like randomly popping up. Support me at this link. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bottle Brush's Patreon can be found. The official music of the Arena Craft Podcast. <laughs> We should try to find a way to feature his music on our show.